I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Mother-in-law's tongue, sneezewort, wiper's bugloss. My favourite plant name is one of a common weed called green alkanet or pentaglottis sempervirens because in both English and Latin it sounds like something straight out the pages of a Harry Potter book. If you've ever felt overwhelmed by long plant names or unsure how to pronounce Ampelopsis brevipedunculata, then this is the show for you. I'm exploring how we can look for clues in the names of the plants we grow with my fellow podcast host Fiona Davidson and botanist James Wong will be calming any pronunciation worries. Plus, why do plant names change just when we think we're up to date? Editor of the Plant Review magazine, James Armitage, will be explaining all. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. So, what's in the name? The international naming system that we use for plants has existed for hundreds of years. But where did it come from? I had a brilliant conversation with our head of libraries, Fiona Davison, to learn more. People have been calling plants whatever they liked for thousands of years, local languages, whatever was meaningful to them. But then as the, the science of botany developed, um, Latin was the international language of learned people and science. So Latin plant names mm. were how people shared information as the written word and books developed. But still, with those early Latin plant names, people were saying what they saw. They would describe the plant in Latin. So you could end up with really long plant names, and some of ours can go on and on and on. And, you know, long, wiry, hairy plants with blue petals, <laughs> all written out in, in Latin. And then there was a Swedish a botanist called Linnaeus who had the brainwave to come up with something we call now binomial naming, so two-part naming, and I like to think of it as the equivalent of human names, so a surname and a first name. So the genus name is like the surname and the species name is like your first name. It kind of works for me. <laughs> That's a really good way of thinking about it, isn't it? I'd never, you know, I'd never thought of it like that. So, for example, if you look at the sunflower, the sunflower genus is Helianthus, and if you have Helianthus annuus, that's the annual sunflower that grows to eight feet tall and the birds like the seeds. But if you have Helianthus tuberosus, that's a Jerusalem artichoke. <laughs> and that's just a nice way of kind of like defining the plants. And you get within families very different people. And so you can get within families of plants very different plants. It's much easier. Because I think sometimes people get scared by Latin names, don't they? They seem unfamiliar. They might be difficult to spell and pronounce. And historically, I think sometimes 
gardeners have been a bit guilty of using them for snob value, you know, mm. to, to exclude those who don't know them. So, you know, you might be impressed to hear that I've grown some fantastic Agapodium podigraria <laughs> in my garden until you realise that that is ground elder. Yeah, it does. It blinds people a little bit. Yeah. We're very familiar mm. with the common names and it's a shorthand. However, to be fair to the botanists and the proper horticulturists, there's a specificity, that's a good yes. word, about a Latin name. You get down to the actual species and then the cultivar and yeah. you can be very specific yes. rather than just saying, you know, foxglove. Yeah. They're really, really useful, aren't they? Yeah, so there really isn't anything to fear. So we spoke to botanist and author James Wong, who will explain all about how these names work and why they're useful. My name is James Wong. I'm an ethnobotanist and a lover of Latin plant names. I really think they can put off a lot of newbie gardeners because, you know, how on earth do you pronounce them and what if you get them wrong? And some of them are really impossible to spell. But all of the benefits of Latin names completely outweigh any of the downsides. They make you not only a better gardener, they make you a better communicator. I think the most important thing before we even talk about why we need to use Latin in the first place is to not be put off by pronunciation. Latin's a dead language, there are no ancient Romans around to correct you, and if you think that, okay, in the Vatican they speak it, that's church Latin. That's not even real classical Latin, as botanical Latin isn't. Botanic Latin, or the scientific naming system, is basically this hodgepodge of Latin, some ancient Greek, but even like a whole bunch of weird languages. So, you know, like Chinese, Quechua, Polish, Russian, they're all mixed into Latin, which means there's no correct pronunciation. In fact, the whole point of Latin names is to serve as an international language. So any person anywhere in the world, no matter if you your first language is Japanese and nothing else, you can pinpoint that Latin name and know exactly the plant you're talking about. And if we didn't have Latin names, there'd be a problem. Someone might uh, ask me how to grow a money plant, for example. There are probably five different species from all over the world, all called a money plant, all with completely different needs. And when I was doing my master's research in Ecuador, what I found, I was studying medicinal plants in local markets, and what I found is things that are called elder in Ecuador and things that are called lime trees in Ecuador are the exact opposite of what they're called in Spain. When the plants were introduced from Spain, the plants made it over and their common names made it over, but they got swapped. So even if I was to say a lime tree to you, you might not think that I was talking about the European native linden, linden blossom. You might actually think it was lime as in lime the fruit. So not only can there be many, many plants with the same common name, there can be many, many common names with the same plant. Latin cuts through all of that confusion and you know exactly what you're talking about. And the other great thing about Latin names is if you understand a tiny bit of Latin, and you really don't have to understand that much of it, is you start to see clues in a Latin name to their performance. So if you see something like the word alba, the Latin for white in a Latin name, it almost always means something is white-flowered. If you see something like macrophylla, macro meaning large, phylla meaning leaf-like, the plant will have large leaves. The opposite, microphylla. As soon as you see that, you know there will be a small-leaved version of the plant. So just with those tiny little bits of information, you can already piece together and guess how plants are related to each other, how they might perform in your garden. They just give you so much useful information. 
One of my big dreams as a botanist is to discover a plant that's completely new to science, that's never been recorded before, because the privilege that gives you is to choose its Latin name. You can make up whatever Latin name you want, and forever that will be emblazoned on the plant. Now, there are a lot of people that will see a downside to this, and that's that many plants that have been known and used for thousands of years by people all over the world will have been uh, first recorded by European botanists. And what they would do is give a Latin name that reflected their own status. For example, you'll see surnames like Banks, so Banksia. You'll see surnames like Veitch, Veitchii. You'll uh, even see royalty like uh, Victoria uh, Vic or Victoriana is labeled into things. And many people will see that as an erasure of the indigenous people who'd actually been using that plant for significantly longer. I suppose it's akin to uh, naming Ayers Rock, Ayers Rock, when it already had the name of Uluru, and people are going back to the, those original indigenous words. Now, I personally understand that sentiment, but as someone from an ethnic minority background and from a former colony, I don't necessarily see that's always problematic, uh, particularly seen in its historical context. However, I would probably see that as problematic if that was done today and moving forward in the future. So if you're a little bit nervous about pronouncing a Latin name and you want to call it or you end up calling it a Dahlia, for example, and someone corrects you and says, oh, actually, I think you'll find it's a Dahlia, that what you need to remember is all that person is doing is proving that they have a poor knowledge of Latin because Dahlias are named after Anders Dahl. And technically, if we're going to be fussy, should really be called Dahlias. So it really doesn't matter. However you want to pronounce it, people should understand you, and they'll understand you a lot better than if you used any other common name. So just bite the bullet and do it. I really, really agree with James about the pronunciation and not mm. getting hung up. And I, I mispronounce things all the time. I'm, uh, my get out of jail card is my accent. <laughs> I go with, oh, it's how we say it round our way and um, get round it that way. And I just think you can, if people show willing, mm. you know, it's about the stress, which syllables you stress, yes. you'll still get the gist. Absolutely. And I just think from my own experience of working in gardens in France and Italy and having to give tours of mm. those gardens, and sometimes I'd be struggling a bit with my French or Italian, and then you bust out a few Latin names and, the <laughs> and everyone faces, yeah. yeah, people's faces light up and you have this kind of mutual recognition and it's such so wonderful to be able to speak a language that is really international mm. and kind of, this is what I was going back to about kind of connecting gardeners across languages and cultures. You know, if you have this one universal language, then we're all, you know, we're all at an equal disadvantage. An English person <laughs> doesn't know how to pronounce it any better than a French person or a Japanese person, really. I also think that I really agreed with James again. This is going to be a hearty I agree with James mm. session. But I really <laughs> agreed with James about the clues that are in the name. Yes. You don't need much Latin, no. but you do. There's some little friends to look yep. out for and yeah. you can tell you so much about the plant, even if you've never yes. come across it. Yes. So like if you have a Quercus and if you have a Quercus palustris, that is from the Latin word for marsh. So, you know, if you've got damp mm. soil, that Quercus, that oak tree will probably do quite well. But if anyone is really interested in how Latin names came about, Anna Pavord wrote a brilliant book called The Naming of Names. Yes, yeah, it's a and, lovely book. And in there, she gives these amazing examples about 
the genius of what Linnaeus did was kind of realise that the names just needed to define, they didn't need to describe the whole thing. Mm. So before Linnaeus, you might have a name such as, right, ready for some schoolboy <laughs> Latin, Plantago folius ovato lanceolatis pubentisibus speakus lindricus scapoteretti, <laughs> which then became Plantago media, or the yeah. hoary plantain. If you look at what that binomial system did in compressing all of that incomprehensible babble down into just two words. It's a stroke of genius, really. Mm, and book producers everywhere must have cheered when yeah. that happened because <laughs> trying to fit those plant names under illustrations on books must have been a yeah, nightmare. Absolutely. <laughs> so I know we've done like a lot of fangirling around Latin plant names, but I do also really like the common or indigenous names, mm. the traditional names that everyday gardeners use, because it can tell you so much about what people Absolutely, believed yeah. about a plant as well and mm -hmm. how it was used. So dog rose, the mm. reason we know that rose, that wild rose as dog rose, is because there was a folk belief that the roots, if you chopped them up, could be a cure for rabies. They're Good not, Lord. I'd just like to stress. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's a, home. <laughs> yeah, but that's a little bit of kind of folklore knowledge just packed into that common name. And you see that time and time again. I really loved hearing from James and talking to Fiona about the way we name plants. I mean, it goes to show that while there are some wonderful stories and uses and local knowledge packed into the common names of plants, I think that the botanical names are really useful too and they're nothing to be scared of. I just hope that the naming of plants is fairer in future than it was in the past. So we don't need to stress about Latin and we can look for clues in the names. You'd think that was that. But what about when these names change? And yes, this does sometimes happen. James Armitage is editor of the Plant Review magazine and he introduced Classification Corner to its pages to explain the latest name changes. Over to James. Plant names are always irritating for people because they've learnt one thing and then suddenly it's another. And they think, shucks, why should I have to learn two names for the same thing? Recent plant changes that you might find annoying are things like Schizophragma and Pileostegia, which are both now species of Hydrangea. Rosemary, Rosemarinus officinalis, is now a species of salvia, and Hebe, which used to be a Veronica, is now a Veronica again. Name changes can persist an awfully long time. Things like um, geraniums and pelagoniums are a classic one. So pelagoniums used to be in the genus geranium, but this was well over 100 years ago, and people still call pelagoniums geraniums to this day, which is the cause of great confusion when ordering things online. So they do rumble on, and once people have a name secured in their mind, they're reluctant to let it go. There's lots of reasons why plant names might change, um, but almost always it's to do with new information and new understanding. These days, of course, we think in terms of DNA as being a real driver of name changes. If you go back to the person who's called the father of taxonomy, Linnaeus, he was just picking up a plant and saying, this plant looks a bit like this plant, I think I'm going to group those together. And actually, it's rather an arbitrary way of doing it. You're basing your classification on a, a small number of characters. So if we look at Actia and Simicifuga, they're very similar, but Actias would have fleshy fruit and Simicifugas have dry capsules. So some people would say, well, that's important. Other people would say that's not important. But if we can look at the DNA of the things, then we're having loads, loads more characters to base our decisions on. And we can get a much clearer idea of true similarity and true relationship. And that is what drives modern name changes. 
Having said that, Linnaeus got an incredible amount right just looking at one plant and another. So what we call the lawn daisy, Bellus perennis these days, is exactly the name that Linnaeus gave it back in 1753. There's terrific advantages in discerning true relationship between plants because you get a much more predictive classification and predictive has a particular meaning in this sense. So if things are closely related and you group them together, then you might think, well, those two things might cross. And a good example of this is digitalis and isoplexis, what used to be called isoplexis. Now, digitalis is our, you know, our native foxglove, and it's a biennial, and it's got one-sided pink flowers, which sort of droop and are pollinated by bees. But on the Canary Islands and Madeira, there's some shrubs, which are bird-pollinated and have flowers that go all the way around the stem and are orange. And when you look at the molecules, it clearly demonstrates that isoplexis is a digitalis. And in fact, of course, they cross, they hybridize to make a beautiful plant, which won Chelsea Plant of the Year not so long ago. So that's the sort of thing that an unsuspected relationship might have horticultural consequences. And also, pests and diseases are often better taxonomists than people. So a pest and disease will know what it's after. It'll know the, the volatiles, the chemicals that it's after and it will recognize closely related species even if we don't so grouping together species helps us predict what diseases plants might be susceptible with because their nearest relations are also susceptible to the same things so there is a, a bit of friction between the scientist and the gardener so the scientist responds quite quickly to new information and adjusts the classification accordingly but Gardeners tend to be more conservative. There's plant labels to think about. And if you change the name of a plant, then, you know, you have to order a whole load of new labels. So the, the, the industry tends to be a bit conservative and, and gardeners as users, they want a name they can stick to. So the RHS's role really is to mediate between that scientific world and the users of the names, the, the gardeners. And we do that through a group called the Nomenclature and Taxonomy Advisory Group, which is made up of scientists and nurserymen and knowledgeable people from all walks. And we look at proposed nomenclatural changes and decide whether we should adopt it or not. And that's reported in my magazine, The Plant Review, in something called Classification Corner. And that's like a, a one-stop shop for people to learn about the nomenclature taxonomic changes that the RHS are adopting. Some name changes we've covered recently in the plant review are Hebe going back into Veronica. So this is a classic example of where people originally described plants in one genus and then other botanists came along and said, hang on, but they're all shrubby. They should be a different genus. And then DNA said, well, shrubby they may be, but they're extremely similar genetically to Veronica's. And so the decision was made long after it had been adopted in New Zealand, actually, for the RHS to call Hebe's Veronica's again, um, which, you know, I can imagine people being very frustrated at because of a Veronica does a very different thing in the garden to a Hebe. But it's that question of how far do we let it go before we're lagging behind the rest of the world? And that problem of using the same vocabulary becomes very difficult. So the decision was made to do that. Rosemary is another example that we've recently discussed in the plant review. So rosemary used to be Rosemarinus vicinalis. We now understand it to be a species of salvia. Um, the relationship between Rosemarinus and salvia is not a new one. People have understood that for a long time, but the evidence is now 
overwhelming that Rosmarinus should be in salvia, a salvia Rosmarinus, along with um, Perovskia. So you might know Perovskia atriplicifolia, and that's also now considered a salvia. So if you want to find out more about name changes of plants, subscribe to The Plant Review. The Plant Review is the RHS's publication devoted entirely to plants, and it's for the real plant enthusiast. It's packed with things you'll never have heard of and long to grow, and it's available four times a year as a subscription magazine. All the name changes we discuss in Classification Corner in The Plant Review are reflected in the RHS Plant Finder, which is the RHS's complete statement about what plant names in cultivation should be used. Thanks, James. Well, that's it for this week. Before I go, here's just a couple of tips to be getting on with in your garden. Check your trees, shrubs and climbers for storm damage. We've had so much wind lately. A lot of things have been rocked. Things might have come away from their supports. And it's a really good time of year before too many leaves grow and too much more damage happens. Prune off any damaged branches. Check your tree stakes. If you've got a young tree and it's staked, check the tie is nice and tight, but not too tight. Go out there with some string, some wire, your secateurs, and you'll get your garden set for the season ahead. For more on today's topics, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy gardening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.